All right, we are back. We mentioned on last week's show, maybe it was the week before, I don't know, about um, how scientists have analyzed sponges to conclude that uh, the earliest ancestor of all animals apparently was a sponge. And uh, curiously, after that bit of biochemical sleuthing, we have this item from New Scientist magazine, August 21st. We think we found the oldest fossil animals in Earth history, says Adam Maloof. The geologist at Princeton University is referring to a jumble of fossilized blobs discovered in Australia's Flinders Ranges, which he believes are the remnants of ancient sponges. Maloof's team dated the fossils to 650 to 640 million years ago, making them 90 million years older than the next oldest animal fossils. Sponges are the most primitive living animals. Genetic studies, notes the article, have suggested they evolved long before the Cambrian explosion of 542 million years ago, which saw the sudden origin of a huge diversity of animal life. But until now, there was no fossil evidence to prove this. To identify the sponges, Maloof's team ground down a fist-sized lump of rock a fraction of a millimeter at a time, taking hundreds of images in the process to create a three-dimensional map of the fossil. This revealed repeated symmetrical shapes, crisscrossed with millimeter-wide canals, which Maloof says are sponge fragments mixed up with a bacterial stromatolite mat. Stromatolites are uh, clusters of bacteria, which are still found in some parts of the world, like in Australia, and appear to be the oldest fossils that uh, we can find, maybe up until, up until these. Interesting correlation of genetic information and that given to us by geologists. Of course, that's if you believe all that science stuff. And then we're going to leave off the uh, global warming uh, deniers, uh, at least on today's program. But it was curious to note that um, it was predicted many years ago that we would see a greater variability in our weather. Things would not be a straight line toward getting hotter. So you have to wonder about uh, what's been going on here, at least in Sacramento this summer. Piece by Matt Weiser and Carlos Alcala in the B on Sunday noted that uh, Sacramento just barely dodged a all-time heat record on Wednesday of last week, and then a few days later almost broke a record for the, the coolest high temperature on that date ever. Three days apart. On uh, Wednesday, August 25th, Sacramento hit 108 degrees, which did break a record for that date at Sacramento's executive airport. Three days later, on the 28th, it almost uh, broke the record for the coolest high temperature, which was 75 degrees. Alas, it only got down to 78. This summer has seen Sacramento hit 100 degrees only 10 times. Our average is 22 days. The record was 1988, where we saw 41 days of 100 degrees or higher. Though these wild uh, extremes in temperature uh, bode poorly for uh, the future of the world, a lot of people think so, but I think we're going to, like I said... Let that one go today. Because yes, weather and climate are not the same thing. As someone noted in that quote book, which I'm not going to bother to look up, so we'll just say someone, climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. All right, we enjoyed our talk with Bert Wilson on last week's program about the great California water grab by Arnold Schwarzenegger and others. We referred uh, at some point to a previous article in the Sacramento News and Review titled Kill Your Lawn by Ted Cox. It was the August 12th issue of the SNNR. I wanted to cite a couple things from that piece. 
want to note, first off, I don't philosophically agree that Sacramento homeowners need to uh, conserve water. If conserving water means it's going to be shipped south so there can be more real estate development in the arid regions of Southern California, I just don't see why we would bother. But I concede there is some merit in the idea. But here's a little gem in the article I hadn't noticed when I read it the first time. Noted Ted Cox, prior to 2005, the Sacramento City Charter prohibited the use of water meters. Prohibited it. But Governor Schwarzenegger muscled through a restriction and required that water meters be used throughout the state by 2025. My question to you is, do you think Arnold did that so there'd be more conservation down in Palm Springs? Or do you think he did it so people would conserve up here, there'd be more in the reservoirs, so it can be shipped to Palm Springs? It's kind of an important distinction. Article by Mr. Cox notes uh, that we developed our penchant to have uh, lawns by the fact that uh, as industrialized 19th century cities grew, beautification programs began to include plans for parks with public lawns. New York Central Park architect Frederick Law Olmsted, who would go on to design park projects across the country, soon designed suburbs that included grass lawns for each home. The invention of the lawnmower and garden hose helped average Americans handle the tasks of cutting and watering. The bottom line, said the article, these forces combine to bring us a crop that doesn't grow here naturally and that requires gallons of toxic weed killers and gasoline for upkeep. Well, stop the presses. I've been maintaining my lawn here in Sacramento for 21 years and I've never used any toxic weed killer. I know, morons buy this stuff by the gallon down at Home Depot and in your uh, various assorted nurseries, and rather than bend over and pull up a weed, they like to reach down and spray it. I guess preferring a shriveled up piece of brown shrubbery to, <laughs> to, to uh, you know, the actual back-breaking labor of extracting it. So yes, you don't have to use any weed killer. Anyway, the, I also don't really truly buy the argument that lawn grass is a monoculture, meaning it doesn't support a lot of biodiversity. Well, it depends on the lawn. If you want to, you can throw a little bit of clover out there. You can mix up different kinds of plants in there, throw in a little dichondra. You can have a diverse lawn ecology if you so choose. Anyway, I don't, I don't really disagree with a lot of what uh, Ted Cox has to say, and I don't disagree with the idea that if you want to plant corn in your yard or you want to have a lot of diversity... The, the codes of the various cities should permit this. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in future installments with the good people at the Sacramento News and Review. But for the final time, I just would note, I'm really skeptical of people that want to save water here in Northern California, but uh, don't seem that concerned about what that saved water will be used to do. Making money for real estate speculators in Riverside County is not my idea of a good use of water. All right, that a lot of Americans think that uh, Barack Obama is a Muslim. After all, they say his father was a Muslim. Missing the point that apparently his father went back to Kenya and didn't have that much to do with raising him. This is creepy stuff. Why is it, by the way, Mr. Merlin points out that these same people don't seem to think that the fact that Jesus' father was a Jew uh, <laughs> seems to have much significance. But it's a strange kind of bigotry involved in this so-called uh, mosque controversy. Said Neil Steinberg in the Chicago Sun-Times, To bigots, all Jews are the same. All blacks are the same. All Muslims are the same. 
Based on that ugly principle, Sarah Palin, Newt Gingrich, and a host of conservative politicians have launched a nationwide campaign to stop the construction of an Islamic center two blocks from the World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan. Their reasoning? The actions of a tiny group of Islamic radicals in 2001 should prevent another completely separate group of Muslims from building a religious center in 2010. A couple weeks ago, the the Anti-Defamation League signed on to that backward logic despite a long history of fighting anti-Semitism. Apparently, the Muslim cleric behind this plan is Faisal Abdul Rauf. Said Jeffrey Goldberg in TheAtlantic.com, I know Faisal Abdul Rauf, and he's hardly a supporter of terrorism. In fact, he represents what Osama bin Laden fears most, a moderate, modern form of Islam comparable with citizenship in a pluralistic Western society. His proposal for a mosque near Ground Zero not only will include an outreach program to Christians and Jews, it will include a memorial to the victims of 9-11. Said William Salatin, writing in Slate.com, If America starts banning mosques, it will only prove that bin Laden was right and that America is waging a global war on Islam. I can't think of a surer way to lose both our national soul and the struggle against terrorism. The Economist weighed in on this controversy, noting that uh, a man with a sign said, all I need to know about Islam I learned on 9-11 was among several hundred people to protest the plan to build a Muslim community center two blocks away from Ground Zero. The rally was organized by Stop Islamization of America. That's its name. Stop Islamization of America. A group which holds that the center would be disrespectful to those who died on 9-11. Noted the magazine, despite the abundance of American flags and the, and the patriotic rhetoric used by the demonstration speakers, the mood quickly turned thuggish. Two Egyptian men had to be protected by the police when some of the crowd threatened them after hearing them speak Arabic. The frightened men were Christian and were at the rally to oppose the project. Noted the magazine, Cordoba House, the proposed center, is to be a place of tolerance. Mark Williams, a Tea Party leader, blogged last month that the center would be a, quote, 13-story monument to the 9-11 Muslim hijackers, unquote. Magazine did fail to note that Mark Williams has been awarded the Jackass of the Week Award on Radio Parallax, which we'll sure they will update in future editions. No, but our missing in action president, Barack Obama, certainly uh, got this one right. He has openly defended this proposed community center and mosque, and said a couple weeks back, Muslims have the same right to practice their religion as anyone else in this country. The horrible part, polls are showing that nearly 70% of Americans are opposing the construction of this center, and that efforts to block other mosques are springing up from California to Connecticut. And regrettably, as he's so often done in his young presidency, Obama backpedaled a little bit after his remarks produced a predictable backlash. TheDailyBeast.com noted that Obama sought to placate the anti-mosque opposition by explaining that he wasn't commenting on the wisdom of constructing the mosque, just on the right to do so. You know, that kind of stuff uh, explains the great quote from Ariana Huffington last week, who <laughs> more or less said, Progressives, face it, he's just not that into you. Anyway, let's just close this up by noting an article by Calvin Woodward in the Associated Press on August 19th. Kind of did a fact check on all of this and noted the following. No mosque is going up at ground zero. The center would be established at 4551 Park Place, just over 
two blocks from the northern edge of the sprawling 16-acre World Trade Center site. Its location is roughly its location is roughly half a dozen normal lower Manhattan blocks from the site of the North Tower, the nearest of the two destroyed in the attacks. The center's location is already used by the cleric for worship, drawing a spillover from the imam's former main place for prayers, the Al-Farak Mosque. Another, the Manhattan Mosque, stands five blocks from the northeast corner of the World Trade Center site. To be sure, the center's association with 9-11 is intentional, and its location is no geographic coincidence. The building was damaged in the September 11th attacks, and the center's planners say they want the center to stand as a statement against terrorism. But just as there were crusaders in the 12th century, there are crusaders now who think that uh, Islam needs to be stamped out. And this whole, quote, controversy, unquote, seems to be giving them an opportunity to push that agenda. Sad to see. I mean, isn't that kind of thing exactly the kind of reaction that would please Osama bin Laden? And by the way, the opinions you hear on this program, well, they don't necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. And I think I'll forego my usual wisecrack today. Anyway, since we're being a bit uh, contentious, I guess the word would be, uh, let's go back to this matter of the U.S. leaving Iraq briefly. What we've done, as far as I can gather it, uh, is to meet the October 31st deadline we had for getting 90,000 troops out of Iraq. There are at present, however, 50,000 troops who are going to remain there through next year. It's alleged that they are not combat troops. I'm wondering what other kind of troops they may be. Anyway, the president uh, declared in a prime time address from the Oval Office on Tuesday that the United States has met its responsibility to Iraq and it is now time to turn to pressing problems at home. President Obama balanced praise for the troops who fought and died in Iraq with his conviction that getting into the conflict had been a mistake in the first place. Yeah, getting together the so-called coalition of the willing to attack a country that had not attacked us if that isn't a, a contravention of international law, what is? Sacramento B. quoted Ibrahim Abdul Wahad, described as a resident of Haifa Street in downtown Baghdad, asking, whose celebration is this? It's his, referring to Obama, not Iraq's. Where are the promises of the planned democracy? Good question. Ayad Alawi, a Sunni-backed candidate still vying to become prime minister in Iraq, says, right now... If you ask any Iraqi, what do you think of democracy? They will say it's blood, stagnation, unemployment, refugees, and cheating. Anyway, sad chapter in American history, which looks as though uh, we'll be brought to a close next year. It's interesting, on the BBC International uh, earlier this week, they were talking about Tony Blair, who has a new book out now, talking about uh, his acts as prime minister. He's refusing to say that it was a mistake to have joined America in going into Iraq. But I'd say if any of you out there are experts, if any of you out there are experts in reading body language, I'd say find the tape and take a look at it. His face looked like it had evasion and misrepresentation all over it as he was saying something uh, uh, to the contrary. As he was saying those things about how he was glad to have gone to Iraq, etc. But then I'm not an expert at such things. And speaking of expertise and criminality and such on a slightly different topic, I want to refer to the uh, article in New Scientist magazine, August 28th. Boy, we're really hitting New Science hard today. 
They're doing a multi-part series on DNA profiling we'll have to talk about, but this was more about uh, a different type of profiling. The alleged profiling one can do at crime scenes that tells you the identity of the criminals. Noted the article, anyone who watches television detective programs will know that criminal profiling claims to predict the characteristics of an offender from an analysis of the crime's circumstances. Most police forces in the developed world use profiling, but it's not always as successful as the small screen would have us believe. Well, to say the least. I think you're familiar with how this works, dear listener, from TV programs and movies like The Silence of the Lambs, etc., But the article notes that a challenger to the system, which is developed by the FBI, appeared on the scene in the 1980s. Troubled by what he saw as a lack of scientific rigor, David Cantor, a psychologist then at the University of Liverpool, began by asking the most basic questions. Is crime scene behavior actually linked to characteristics of the offender? He used statistical tools to look for patterns in police databases aiming to find out how often different behaviors were coupled at the same crime scene. The article notes that Carter's scientific analysis marked an important break with the past. Notes that Mark Hiltz, who heads the second of three behavioral analysis units at the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime in Quantico, Virginia, admits that the FBI has carried out no controlled studies of profiling's efficacy since the center was established back in 1985. You know, it's good to ask the question every so often, does this work? And when you actually study it, the answer appears to be, maybe not. For example, in the style of fortune tellers and astrologers, it appears that some of these profiles that people generate, forensic psychologists and the like, apparently are couched in such ambiguous terms they can be made to fit almost any possible offender. In fact, at the University of Liverpool, they did a study, published back in 2003, where they presented two groups of police officers with a profile from a real case, and either the actual offender or a very different fabricated offender. More than half of both groups rated the profile as an accurate description of the offender. And they cite a notorious example of how this went wrong. A man named Colin Stagg was accused of the murder of Rachel Nickel in Wimbledon. Despite a lack of any forensic evidence against him, Stagg fitted the offender profile drawn up by criminal psychologist Paul Britton. And the police designed a covert operation to entrap him. Stagg was acquitted at trial, but the debate was a wake-up call to British police about the dangers of relying upon profiles. Article notes that some law enforcement agencies are beginning to show signs of disillusionment. Quoted statistician Chris Devery as saying, I don't think profiling has much of a future. He's conducted a review of literature for the New South Wales Police Force in Australia, adding, there's just no evidence that it works. Article notes that others see a future for it, but only if practiced very differently. One defender said that profiling is very, very young in scientific terms, but she's optimistic that it could be an effective investigational tool if rebuilt on solid scientific foundations. Hey, good idea. After all, this person said, it's just another name for understanding how people act. By saying that profiling doesn't work, We're essentially saying that psychology doesn't work. Dot, dot, dot. Fill in your own wisecrack here. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Evett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.